When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi guys, welcome back to the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast, an iHeartRadio and Dan Patrick Podcast Network production. I'm Alan Nevins. And I'm Joey Santos, and this week we're talking about triple threats in Hollywood. And joining our conversation is the one and only Suzanne DePass, a true triple threat behind the camera and a pioneer in the music, film, and television industries. And she's produced many of the TV shows and specials that we love. For example, Lonesome Dove, The Temptations, Sister, Sister, and all of the Motown music specials, just to name a few. That's right. And Suzanne and I actually have known each other for a long time. So I can't wait to sit down with her and talk about her incredible career and the path that she has paved for women, especially women of color. So grab a drink and let's dive in. So Joey. Yes. In honor of our guest, who we're doing something a little different today, actually. Our guest is going to be with us during the entire podcast. I know. I'm excited. And she's here and with she's us. she's here in, in the room, in person. In the flesh. Not via some mechanical device. And you have created, uh, it's like a, I don't know what it is. It's incredible looking. It looks like a sombrero. Am I allowed to talk now? Yes. You can. <laughs> <laughs> you can it talk does look whenever. like a sombrero, actually. Yeah. <laughs> this is a chocolate martini with coconut, and it's got um, chocolate syrup. It's got frangelico. It has a little bit of coconut rum, some really good strong vodka, and uh, a little bit of chocolate syrup, and a little bit of shaved coconut and hot fudge around the rim. Does it come so. with the doctor? It comes with a di- <laughs> with a diabetes. Well, you know what I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it a triple threat. Yes, good cocktail name mm-hmm. for this. It has three liquors, um, but it's amazing. <laughs> now I guess I should taste it. We also have a cocktail for you, which is your one of your favorites, which is a uh, a vodka with uh, soda and fresh lime, and then you add a little special secret. Yeah, secret I add thing to something it. called a skinny. Uh huh. So powder. It's a it's a powder that doesn't have calories. It you know doesn't have. Chemicals. Uh huh. Good. But it, it, you know, it kind of gives Sweetens you that extra it? little zing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cheers. Welcome. Well, cheers. This is quite good, actually. Cheers. Oh, Thank I started you. without you. Sorry. Cheers. 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 Ching ching. I like this. What's not to like? You drunk on the floor with it's coconut. <laughs> kind of like an almond joy, really. That's great. The chocolate and the coconut. I really like that. Good. I'm glad. All right. We have so much to talk about today. It's been a busy week. And you know what? Before we get into our week, Let's talk a minute about Mary Wilson. Since she passed a few weeks ago, and we've not talked about it on the show, and since Suzanne is here, I'm assuming, Suzanne, that you were friendly with Mary Wilson. Yeah, you know, um, in terms of my role at Motown in those days, when I was working with the Supremes and then Diana Ross in the Supremes, and actually I was introduced to Motown by... Cindy Birdsong, who became a Supreme, mm-hmm. replacing Florence Ballard. Right. Um, I spent more time on the road seeing after Diana Ross than I did either Cindy or Mary. And it kind of, you know, because there was that separation that... Between them? Well, yeah, because Diana was getting ready to go out as a solo artist. Mm-hmm. And I was much more involved in that. But I was really sad 
to hear that she had had passed away and way too young in my opinion. Yeah. Well, yeah. we just saw her at the uh, Project Angel Food. Mm-hmm. She was there and she'd asked me about her, you know, she was coming out with a new book and she'd asked me some things about it. So, uh, so it was a little bit of a surprise. It's not like she was ill or something. She was in great energetic form. Mm-hmm. She had just finished recording a, uh, an album, I think. Yeah, believe. I think so. She was in Vegas, yeah, and she would just wrap that up and The thing about it is what they achieved as the Supremes, then as Diana Ross and the Supremes, and then Mary carried on with the new Supremes, mm-hmm. was just historic. Yeah. It was yeah. pioneering young black women in a glamorous, hit-making, wonderful— And inspirational. Yeah, and inspirational <clears throat> and aspirational. Very, yep. And, you know, people, especially nowadays, people use certain words that— they take liberty with certain words, iconic being one of them. Mm-hmm. This is an opportunity to use it that it actually applies. Oh, yeah. There's, there's no doubt. And no, I got, and listen, and I got a chance. When you listen to the radio and you go back to those great hits, what's among them but the Supremes? Yeah, I used to stand in the wings because when I was traveling with them, mm-hmm. and I would do the choreography in the wings. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I did, too. <laughs> you know, it was, it was like poor little match girl in the wings, you right. know, waiting for somebody to break an ankle so I could go on, except I can't sing. So, and how was your week, Alan? My week was great, actually. I watched a lot of television. I got caught up on a bunch of shows. And in fact, Suzanne, have you seen Fake Famous? No. What is it? Well, it's basically about, they take three kids, that they, they interview a thousand people, and they choose three of them and decide they're going to try to make them famous through the internet with uh-huh. Instagram, and they cut their hair, and they do the whole bit and see if they can do it. And it's all about the likes and the things. Mm-hmm. You know, the problem is that they're famous for nothing. Yes. And well, most people who got famous for nothing or sex tapes or whatever, yeah, exactly. you know. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. we know there's a lot of them these days. Wait, that but they actually set these scenarios up. Mm-hmm. You could be in a mock-up of a plane. A fake plane, private jet. And they, right. A lot of people just hold a toilet seat up to, to the view, and they put their face like they're looking out a window. It looks like yeah. a, like an airplane. <laughs> it does. A toilet seat looks like an airplane, window. and they're flying over something. You know, there's some water outside there. And so it's that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so then they set them up for all these scenarios, and then— they buy, I guess, what are those fake likes? What uh-huh. do they call those things? Or yeah, you buy, well, you buy friends yeah. and yeah. buy yeah. Uh, bots. And then they get enough bots, and they get enough of them, and all of a sudden, they, then they start becoming actual real likes, and then people start, you know, wanting them to uh, do promotions for mm-hmm. their product, this and that. They start making money. They start making this. And but before you know it, they're famous, but they're scratching their head going, I, I mean, I thought this was an experiment, yeah. you know, and there you go. Social media culture and the internet has, you know, wonderful, extraordinary benefits. Totally. And some terrible, terrible, terrible. Well, it's terrible. like any powerful medium it, mm-hmm. when it's abused and then it's. Yeah, but mostly the, the medium was held kind of away from the population, you know. Yeah, it was. But now everybody is their own studio, their own network. Everybody's their own, an entrepreneur. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know. And, and every- let me tell you, I'm pissed at Instagram. I don't know if you've ever bought anything from Instagram? Oh, of course. Have you? And have it's you COVID, babe. It? Joey, it's COVID. <laughs> I've bought something and, from anybody. <laughs> and you, and you I know, I've bought a lot of stuff online myself. <laughs> I go to, what's that thing you go with the packages? What's everybody loves? Amazon. Amazon. Oh, oh, oh boy. Well, I do Cut that your drinks off. <laughs> Lost that sponsor. But wait, the Instagram. No, Amazon's great. Instagram <laughs> has given me some problems because they advertise these things and I go, and I'm a sucker. You know, if you tell me I'm that guy that says, 
I have copper pots, you know, <laughs> and then it says this will clean that copper pot. And, you know, the only reason I hate, I love copper pots, but then using them in, a, in two things you've cooked and then they're already destroyed. Right. And it's a pain in the, you know, in the ass to keep them clean and all that stuff. And you have to do it. Anyway, they advertise this this uh, product that will clean it with one wipe and they're <laughs> sparkling and beautiful. So I buy it. $43. For and then, and then you can get two, you know, if you pay <laughs> you an extra twenty dollars, <laughs> whatever. And then it comes at, now. This actually arrived in the mail uh, two weeks later, and it got in the mail, and it was the size of my thumb. <laughs> this this little uh, tube that's supposed to clean. I have ten pots, <laughs> and it was the size of my thumb. Thank God I bought two, so one pot is now clean, and the other nine. Well, did it work? It worked, uh, but I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I might as well buy you a whole new set new of pots. And I found, and then I see this thing. I thought it was a tooth whitener. And, you know, I'm always down with anything like that. So, okay, right away, I'll get two. I got two. It came today. That's why I told you I was pissed. You know what came in the mail today? Fake teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Bottom and top, fake teeth. Or and did I you went, put over your own teeth? Yeah, you like snap them in. They're plastic. They look. They were fake teeth. I even put them in to see what they looked like. I look. I couldn't even close my mouth. And I said, I thought it was. I thought it was a whitener. They're white, and and white like the plate. White. Right. So I'm pissed. I'm never buying anything. And Andrew, my partner, just laughs and goes, shakes his head, goes, again, right. again with this. Because you didn't read the details. There are no details. There's not even instructions <laughs> in the thing. <laughs> cannot. Cannot figure it out. Seriously. Oh, anyway, God. that's the last purchase I'm making from them. Sorry, whoever you are. Instagram, it's not their fault, but they should maybe aid in the uh, in the description a little bit. <laughs> Getting back on track only because I have, I have another question I'm curious about. Yes. Uh -huh. Have you seen the Woody Allen documentary yet? I saw the first episode. Yeah. Yeah, we that's, all what I, that's what I we, saw. We, we want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I think we all have our opinions. We do. Very interesting. I'd like to hear Suzanne, since she's our guest, what her opinion is first. Oh, there what you go. What did you take away? Then we can argue with her, maybe. Well, <laughs> you know, I didn't know that much about I, I knew about the Sunni mm -hmm. and Woody marriage. Mm -hmm. Did you know about the naked pictures? No, I did not. Yeah, I, I didn't. Either. But they I didn't. haven't gotten to that yet. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Of course they oh, did. Did, did, you, did you go take a nap? <laughs> oh, no. He's famous for napping in the middle of it. Yeah. You went me, me in no, the no, middle. I stayed awake for this, though. I don't remember the naked pictures. Well, she, yep. she goes to the apartment and she finds the naked pictures. Mia finds. That's how she found out about the affair. She, Mia she was going to get one of the kids' coats or something. Correct. That she had left I there. did miss that. Maybe mm -hmm. I got up to Maybe you took a nap? Was, no, I didn't take a nap. Maybe you I, went pee -pee? I was I couldn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it might have been a little pee pee. Maybe you had um, to make some tea tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep, that's how she found out. And she was devastated. You know, I don't know about the molestation part, you know. Yeah, that's I where I get weird. I think more and more will be revealed. But the simple fact that he married her daughter that, and he was allegedly her father figure, you know, that to me is right. enough. 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 It, it well, almost, I think that's what a lot of people tie. They were like, oh, he must have molested her because he married the – you know, they tied the two together. I don't together. tie the two together necessarily. I don't either. But a I lot of people it's... do. They they say he must have done one because he did the other. Mm -hmm. But The only thing that threw me off, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I thought maybe because – let's face it. They're both kind of kooky in their own way. Mm. You know what I mean? And they're, her way of parenting with – like, you know, Rowan wanted a cow. 
And mom, can I have a cow? And she says, no, absolutely not. I'm going to buy you two cows <laughs> because this cow needs to have a friend cow. And you know, so that, that's kind of kooky, whatever that is. Okay, but then his that wasn't thing, in there, was it? No, but it will be. <laughs> oh, okay. Because he, he, I heard that from him personally. Him who? Rowan, the son. Oh, Rowan. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, Woody, from the very beginning, he says, I have no interest in children. Right. I don't want to raise children. You keep them at your house. I'll keep them at my house. No kids for me. Nothing, nothing. I have no skills. I have no interest in any way, shape, or form. Then, as, he, as the relationship started to develop between them and the children were, you know, cute and affectionate and lovely, and, and I guess he started to form a bond with the children. But being a little cuckoo, I think... His interpretation of affection, because mm -hmm. he's had no, the man was not a parent. He was not, he had no, you know, so no I, I think point. the way that he looked at it was not in a sexual, I felt that mm -hmm. it's not in a sexual way, mm -hmm. especially right. for the little girl. But then that's what I thought going, going, watching it. But then listening to her, the girl that had happened to, the daughter. Dylan. Dylan. Then I'm going, well, wait a minute. She just can't be making this up. She's not a cuckoo bird, too. You know, maybe. But you know what I mean? That's mm -hmm. kind of heavy. to. You don't go through that trauma without something. Right. She was only three or four or five. Seven. And now, Seven. Was, you know. But yeah. who knows what that turns into, especially with media and with parents talking, and especially when they're at odds. And then the the other daughter that he does fall in love with. So it all gets convoluted. To the person who's not in our industry or is not used to watching these things, it's all coming from one side. He did not cooperate with this documentary, which means that they, me aside, and that family decided to get together and do a documentary about this where their opinion is going to be the only one that really is presented. Well, the parts of his side that is, that are presented are clearly... Edited in a certain way. Of course, to, like editing. You know. But but they didn't interview him. The interviews they show are from years ago. And then they do this tricky little thing, so it looks like he's participated, where they use his voiceover. Mm -hmm. Now, there's been a lawsuit launched by the publisher, because what they did is they stole, and I say stole because they're claiming fair use, but I don't think using all those clips is fair use. And no, I've fair never, use is very, very narrow, very isn't it? Very narrow, and it has to be. If you look up, there's four things that you have to apply to make it fair use, and they don't apply here as far as I'm concerned. I'm not an attorney, and I'm not a judge, but I'm telling you, if you read them, you probably would come to the same conclusion. But they took them right out of his audio book, put them up there, and while they do put it in the corner, you know, from page 292, and he reads these very lovely things about Mia mm -hmm. and the kids. There is a lawsuit over it saying, you know, that's copyright infringement. Well, first well, of all, I, I wish that they had streamed it because I wanted to see all four episodes at once. At once. Yeah. You know, yeah, I was we like, have to wait. And I'm, I'm not used to waiting. You no, know? I, I want it now. <laughs> I want it now. It's, yeah. it's the COVID now. No, it's exactly. Now. How was your week? Doubly amazing. So, you know, we had dinner with um, Joan Collins um, recently. Did you know that she can sing? I had no idea. Her husband, Percy, showed me a video clip of her singing. And I was expecting to hear like Florence Foster Jenkins. I mean, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> oh, Florence Foster Jenkins. Yes. And then all of a sudden it's her sounding like Shirley Bassey. I was floored, literally floored. Can I tell you something? I'm not surprised. Joan Collins is one of those people that has met every challenge. She has proven herself to be 
not only a glamorous movie star that are fading as fast as we can imagine, and yet we have Joan. Yeah. The fact that she can sing is not surprising to me at all. Well, Suzanne, I'm going to tell you this so you can— I'm going oh, to. Saturday night. No, I'm going to, I'm going to do gonna it Saturday Percy night. We're going to say Percy has it in his phone. Let's pull it out. I'm, I'm yeah. definitely. I'm, I'm happy to know about it. <laughs> yeah. We started saying she's a triple threat. She's a triple threat. She's a triple threat. I said she should do the mass Singer. Nobody oh, would ever would guess. Never, nobody would guess. Nobody would guess. What a good idea. Right? Yeah, except now you've given it away on our podcast. Oops. Everybody's going to know. No, well, they then, won't. Nobody won't. You know, we'll she dresses it. up in some unglamorous right. like, yeah, yeah. yeah, they won't know. <laughs> she, she was Carol Burnett and the cleaning lady. Right. Remember that <laughs> yeah. character? Yeah, well, so we it, it caused us to talk about triple threats because of that, that video that we saw. And that brought up some other triple threats. Oh, look who's at the top of my list, Joan Collins. That's the name of the cocktail. Yes. Uh, and Diana Ross, of course, is on that list, as is Lena Horne. Oh, yeah. Now— I don't remember. That's who you don't hear much of anymore. I loved Lena Horne. I remember as a little boy, my parents loved her. And she was on, I think it was Ed Sullivan or one of the shows. And I was a little kid. And my father was like, you've got to see this woman sing. You've got to listen to her sing. I sit in front of the TV and I was just, Lena Horne, she was so, I mean, but her phrasing and her performance was so, you know, electrifying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even as a little kid, realizing that. Yeah, I thought her one-woman show on Broadway was spectacular. What was it called? Uh, um, I forget. Lady, in, I think of the lady in her music. Uh, Diana Ross. What are what, the triple? Obviously, she can sing. Yeah, she of can act. What's considered in our triple? She can dance. Oh, she can dance. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she can dance. She can sing. She can act. I mean, Diana Ross is Diana Ross. I mean, even if she just sat there, I, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's good enough for me. <laughs> and we will be back right after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, we are back, and we've all gotten a refill on our drinks as well. Yes, Yay. we have. So that'll <laughs> keep us going. <laughs> Suzanne, let's go back a minute here. How did you get into that world, and what got you caught up with the Supremes and Motown? It's not a short story. Okay, well, you have Well, we can do it two-parter. Right. No. <laughs> or condense it. No, because of Cindy, and she and I were friends, when she became a Supreme, I was working— at a club right across the street from the what's now the Ed Sullivan Theater, which was then the 52nd Street Theater. Uh-huh. In New at York. A club, yeah, in New York at a club called Cheetah. Mm-hmm. And it was a big dance hall. And I had, by just a fluke, been hired as the talent coordinator. Basically because I used to go there with my, my friends and we would dance. And I would offer my unsolicited opinion to the managers <laughs> about the bands that they had because it was live music in those that days. sounds like you. <laughs> right. I've never been shy about that. So Cindy, who had been with Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, was tapped by Motown to join the Supremes. And she called me up one day. And in those primitive, <laughs> primitive times, you know, we didn't have a cell phone. Right. You couldn't even check your answering machine from out. You had to be home to get the call or home to get the message. So she actually caught me at home and she said, 
This is Cindy. She said, um, I got a call from Motown. Florence Ballard is leaving the Supremes, and they want me to leave the Bluebells and join the Supremes. What do you think? And I went, are you nuts? Of course you yeah, do that. Go. And she did. And so on her first Ed Sullivan appearance, you know, which was the most popular Sunday night show sure. ever in the history of variety television, I wanted to take her out to dinner after their Friday rehearsal. And in those days, it was kind of dicey. You couldn't always count on getting a cab if you were black because none of the cab drivers wanted to go to Harlem, and they figured if you were black, you were going to Harlem. You know, so it was... Yeah. And I did what I thought any logical person would do is I rented a limousine <laughs> 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 that I could not afford, mind you. Right. But um, fortunately, I had my mom you know, as backup. <laughs> anyway, so the limo picks me up. Now, remember, Cheetah is diagonally across the street from the theater where they're rehearsing. But because of the one-way streets in New York, right. they pick me up going south on Broadway, so we have to go all the way around to 6th Avenue, come up and come going west on, 40, on 52nd Street. And I'm sitting outside the stage door, aching, dying to go inside and see what's going on. But I was raised too well to mm -hmm. you know, sure. go where I'm not invited. So I'm sitting there, and Cindy came out finally, and said the words that literally changed my life forever. She said, Suzanne, Mr. Gordy's car has gone on an errand. He has an appointment and needs a ride. Can we give him one? <laughs> so the first time I met the man that was going to become my boss, I gave was in him— your limousine. <laughs> I gave him a ride in my ill-gotten <laughs> limousine. limousine. <laughs> so he comes out, gets in the car— practically dislocates his neck as he looks to his, you know, his yeah. left to this kid. I was 19. Right. And he, I'm sure, because I know Barry Gordy very well by now, that he thought I was some kind of hooker or, you know, exotic <laughs> dancer right. or not an heiress. You know, yeah. his mind didn't go to heiress uh, or right. even that she could afford it, but it went to, you know. So we took him to his appointment and it was in an art gallery where he had you know, I guess arranged to see some special art. And he asked us to come in, which we did. And then he said, well, why don't you have dinner at the Essex house where all the Supremes and everybody was staying? And he was staying with his entourage. So off we went to the Essex house to join him for dinner. And I, of course, didn't have the presence of mind to let the limo go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we went into the restaurant, and I had never seen anybody catered to the way they catered to him. People were leaping and twirling and bringing phones and stuff to the table. And it was wonderful. You know, I mean, I, I was like Alice in the looking glass. I was like, wow, yeah, this is yeah. great. And so one thing led to another, and that was early in 19... Uh, 67. And that Christmas, uh, Cindy invited me to join them at the Deauville Hotel in Miami Beach. Mm -hmm. And every night I would go to the show, and they had two shows. They had a dinner show and a late show. And I was invited to sit with Mr. Gordy and his kids and his entourage and all of his, you know, the people that were down there, his sisters and stuff like that. And I got to know him a little bit. And on the last night, which was New Year's Eve, and now after they did the whole ringing of 1968, there was a party in Diana Ross's suite, duplex suite, and uh, I approached Mr. Gordy, who I felt comfortable with at this point, 
And I said, you know, I'm now booking theaters for Lee Goober, who owns the Westbury Music Fair, Painter's Mill, Shady Grove, you know, five theaters. He was married to Barbara Walters at the time. I wasn't working directly for Lee. I was working for a man called Howard Stein. What Howard had figured out is between the book shows that would go in the round at these theaters, like Carousel and Camelot and all those, there was dead time. And he made an arrangement with Lee to put contemporary music acts in for concerts. And I was tapped to book those concerts, and I was booking Sonny and Cher and Simon and Garfunkel and all these people. So I said to Barry Gordy, who I, I think I called him Mr. Gordy for the first 10 years I worked for him, and uh, until I came up with Simon as in Legree. <laughs> and, um, you know, I approached him and I said, you know, I have a new job, and I'm having such a terrible time booking Motown acts. I mean, I can get Sonny and Cher, and I can get this one, I can get that one, but I can never get an answer about the Motown acts. And um, he looked at me, and by this time, you know, he knew me a little bit. Yeah, he was familiar. And um, he said, well, I don't know what's wrong, but maybe we need someone like you to help us figure it out. And so I got hired. I was living in my five-flight walk-up on East 57th Street. And um, so I'm getting a check. And there's crickets. I'm not hearing anything. And I'm getting a check. And I don't hear anything. (laughs) And so I called up Detroit to his office. And I said his his assistant's name, in those days, secretary, uh, was Rebecca. And I said, oh, hi, Rebecca. This is Suzanne DePass. I was wondering if I could speak to Mr. Gordy. You know, I'm all humble. And and, um, he gets on the line. And he says, what's up? I said, oh, well, hi, Mr. Gordy. You know, it's Suzanne, and I'm here in New York, and I just thought I'd mention that, you know, I'm getting paid, but I'm not doing anything. He says, do you think I'm an idiot? (laughs) And I went, no, sir, I do not think you are an idiot. Far from. He said, I know I hired you, and when I have something for you to do, I'll let you know. Click. (laughs) (laughs) How do we get that job? (laughs) Yeah, is he hiring now? (laughs) (laughs) And it was like one of those first object lessons that I learned so much from him. Every day was like a a, a year in university. Mm -hmm. But it was that challenging someone that you know to be compass mentis, you know, that they're in full faculty of their possessions, as my mother used to say, um, (laughs) is not necessarily required. It's not up to you necessarily to go seek further clarification if it's already been clarified. Mm-hmm. He hired me. He told me what, I, what to do. I was feeling insecure about getting this money and not having an assignment. Yeah. And so it, it was very interesting, you know, as far as that was the first of many. So that brings up something I heard. I want to know if it's true. Mm-hmm. I saw the musical Motown a few years ago. And, of course, I was so surprised that, you know, it opens up and who walks out onto the stage but a character named Suzanne DePass. Right. But in that musical, they basically make a point that you discovered the Jackson 5. And I heard from somebody that that was the first time that Barry Gordy allowed it to get out that actually you had discovered the Jackson 5. Not true. No? No, it's, it's always been the case. Eventually, I was moved to Detroit. And there was a building where Diana Ross had the penthouse, Cindy was in the building, other executives, other artists. It was a high-rise 
at 1300 East Lafayette Street. Wow, you're in good Detroit. at these addresses. What a memory. I, you know, she was spent seared, enough time they're, there, yeah. They're emblazoned in my brain. <laughs> and um, so among the artists that were in the building, there was an artist by the name of Bobby Taylor of a group called Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's who had a big hit with a song called Does Your Mama Know About Me? And among the people in the Vancouver's was someone we have come to know as Tommy Chong. That's where he started. Really? Of Cheech and Chong. Yeah, yes. yeah crazy. Of yeah. Yeah, I knew he was I didn't a know musician. That. Yeah. 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 Anyway, and I've seen him, you know, later, much later, um, in fact, recently, at a dinner, and it was just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. You know, one of those. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, so Bobby calls me up, and I happen to be home to get the call. And he said, uh, listen, I want you to come down to my apartment. I said, I am not coming down to your apartment, Bobby <laughs> Taylor, no way. You know, because it's like, no. And he said, no, it's nothing like that. Come, come down. I want you to see something. So I go down to his apartment, and there, strewn across his living room, are these kids, and they're a couple of adults, two two men, and um, he sort of claps his hands and he says, "Okay, this is Suzanne Pass. She works for Mr. Gordy. She can get us the audition. So sing for her." So they sang like five songs a cappella, and you know the hairs on the back of your neck. Yeah, sure. When they like reach for the it's sky, standing up just mm-hmm. you saying this right. I now. was like, "Oh my God." And I carried my buckets back upstairs to my apartment, <laughs> and I reached out to Mr. Gordy's office, and I didn't get him that day. got him the next day through Rebecca, and um, I said, oh, Mr. Gordy, I have just seen the most incredible act. We have to sign them. He said, great. I said, wait until you see these kids. He went, kids? <laughs> Are you out of your mind? I don't want any kid acts. Do you know how much trouble Stevie Wonder is? <laughs> with the teachers and the chaperones and uh-huh. the whatevers and the whatevers. So my big claim to fame is I was relentless. I did not give up. I did not give up. Eventually, he saw them, and the rest of that story is history. Right. Well, it's a good thing because somebody would have seen them, and that would have been Well, the, the point is that they had been touring around. You know, their father, Joseph, I give him a lot of credit for bringing them to a certain point. Mm-hmm. But... You know, barriers to entry in so many parts of our business are steep, almost insurmountable. And, you know, what that taught me, and I've pretty much lived my life this way, is um, you never know where a great idea is going to come from. You must keep your antenna up to receive because you don't know. You don't know. And it's all subjective. It's all a matter of taste. It's all a matter of instinct. Nobody knows till the audience votes. But that's why we have a gut. You know, that's why we yeah. have that thing but that makes us go. talent perseveres in the end, too. Well, not, but it, there's a lot I mean, of, a lot of talent people it, and writers and things. Yeah, never there, are, there are so many talented people. You know, I think I've come to think that first you have to do everything right and then you have to get lucky. Hang tight, and we'll be right back. Do you remember how we met? Was with Irving. Yeah, but do you remember really what sort of what it was over? 
And I may have a story you don't know about. Okay. Well, please tell me because my memory fades. I don't know what I had for lunch yesterday. So, you know, so, you've just been in my life forever. So I don't. I, it's been a long time. It really has. He sold you the novel mm-hmm. by Larry McMurtry. Yes. Lonesome Dove. Yes. And the you, bandit sold it to me after it had been passed on everywhere. After it had been passed, and you took it, he was so happy he'd sold this. He thought you weren't going to be able to do a damn thing with this. <laughs> he was so happy he could go back to Larry McMurtry and say, I sold this to, you know, major producer. And sure enough, look what came out of it. Mm-hmm. That maybe, for me, certainly one of the top three miniseries I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I thought it was amazing. Well, you know, because statistically, it's it's so, um, it's become... This iconic thing, you know, and I'm, I'm obligated to to pay tribute to all of the people and all of the things that involved went yeah. into it. It's a happy obligation. Anyway, and I called him up and he said, "Well, it's going to cost you fifty thousand dollars, but I'll give you eighteen months." And I didn't know better, so I spent fifty thousand dollars of Barry Gordy's money <laughs> <laughs> on the option for Lonesome Dove, and. Soon thereafter, I mean, he cashed the check, and a woman who was working with us at the time, Diane Sokolow, came into my office. She had been at Warner Brothers, and she said, I hate to tell you this, but the book has been passed on everywhere. Every studio, every network has passed, and here is the coverage from Warner Brothers, which was horrible. (laughs) I mean— And I'm looking at this coverage, and I'm going, did this person read the read same the book, book as me? Yeah. And that is another lesson of how subjective our business is, Yeah, is that one person reads something and says, this is shit, and another person says, the same thing is great. And you just have to be, to thine own self, be true, and go by your own instincts and your own taste. Yeah. It had come upon a year. And Irving Lazar called me one day and said, Kid, I just want to let you know that this morning, Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove has won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. And literally, I went from goat to goddess overnight. Uh, uh, Yep. Wow. Congratulations. And and it was because he had charged me out the ass (laughs) (laughs) that I had 18 months. Right. Because had it not been 18 months, I would have lost it like the next day. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I had that extra six months. You know, it's one of those things that is a defining moment in my career. I didn't make a lot of money, but none of what I got could money buy. I'll never forget a conversation that I had with Kimla Masters, who was running CBS at the time. When we finally, we had looked at every actor Canadian, British, whatever. And we came upon, well, what about Tommy Lee Jones? And I think at that point he had done Executioner's Song. And I'll never forget, I called Kim LeMasters to say, we think that Tommy Lee Jones would be great. And he said, Suzanne, this is CBS, not PBS. <laughs> Which, you know, again, there's so many lessons everywhere because at the end of the day, he's looking at the network, he's looking at algorithms or, you know, statistics right. and stuff like that. We're looking at this guy is great. You're looking at artistry, you know? yeah. And, and he's a brilliant actor. And he is. Yeah. And, and look what has happened to his career, sure. you know. But um, it was it was one of those things where I felt like God put her arms around us mm-hmm. and said, Thou shalt 
be made. Right. Well, you're right about people's tastes and what they, you know, I, I mean, I've done that a million times. I've read something and go, there's no way they read this book. I've seen this coverage. There's no way. And and in fact, now it's interesting because a lot of people with this new, you know, with all the streaming and all these companies, you know, they're buying tons. As you know, they're buying tons and tons of things. And they're coming back and they're saying to me with books, you know, well, what about this? And what about, and they're like, why didn't you ever send that to us? I did send this to you. And I still have books that I say, you are missing the mark by not buying this book. And, and in fact, a recent one, which we set up at Sony with a, a showrunner from a very big show, which I won't talk about yet. But I attached myself as a producer of because course. they came back and they were like, oh, we have to have this book. And I said, I've showed you this book. This book has been everywhere in town and everybody said it couldn't be made. And I've been telling you that this is a hot hit series. And so when they said, we want to buy it, I said, great, you're going to buy it. And I'm going to be a producer on it because I told you five years ago to make this. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I have a There's lot of There's nothing better like than that. I told you so. Right. Even if I you know, don't I love, say it. Just I love so that. You, right. know what in your, yeah. you know what I mean? When I was working for Mary Lazar, I'd found this this book. And I said, let's take it to Dyson Lovell because he had produced Lonesome Dove. And I said, you know, he's got all the casting. He does all the casting, right? He knows all these people. And he said, you know, what do you think about Franco Zeffirelli? Maybe we should show it to him. And he's only done the one miniseries about Jesus. He did mm-hmm. that huge miniseries. And I said, I would love for Franco Zeffirelli. He gets me invited to a dinner party. Franco's in town. And we go to this party, and I get seated next to Franco. And we had this great evening, and then eventually Franco said, let's go talk in the other room. And we go in the other room, and I said, you know, what do you, what do you think? I want you to do this novel called Children of the Dust. And he said, I read it. It's very good. I understand why you like it. He said, but I can't do it. And I said, why? I, he said, I don't want to do television. I said, but you did... You did the Jesus of Nazareth miniseries. And he said, Alan, Jesus is in my blood. The children of the dust are not. (laughs) And that was that. And it would have been a great miniseries. You brought up something interesting, Suzanne, because that was a long time ago. So you were a black woman producer in Hollywood trying to produce a Western with a bunch of white, right? winger kind of <laughs> cowboy guys. That, how have things changed from that time to now? There's lots of producers out there that are doing really well, and black women who actually are doing extremely well. How have things changed? Well, you know, I think many things have changed for the better. And surely there are some incredible creative people, writers, producers, directors, women, women of color, All that's great. But my big objection to where we are today is that there's so much emphasis on having to look like the project you're producing that I think it's stifling creativity in many ways. There's a a sort of politically correct thing out there that is, I think, stepping on the ability. I don't know that I could get Lonesome Dove produced today. Right. So in that respect... They would say to you, are they going to all be black actors? Yeah. They would, right. they would, or can they be black actors? Right. Or, you know, that, that there's this color matching, sort of gender matching, mm-hmm. LBGTQ matching, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying that I 
want to produce stories that float my boat. You right. know? right. I don't want to have the requirement heaped on me that if I want to do a general market love story, that I am precluded from doing it because what would I know about that? Right. You know? Yeah. And I think that it's a very sad state of affairs that we have where there's this real acceptance of, you know, sort of, quote-unquote, black projects, slaves, athletes, drug dealers, criminals. You know, there's a street life. That's a comfort zone to a great extent for many buyers. Right. I'm not saying all, but many. But breaking out of that box, I mean, my motto is if you think inside the box, it will become your coffin and you will be buried in it, you know, is that— as a creative person and as a person who's grown up in America, if I want to do a Western and I've done like 60 hours of Westerns or if I want to do a romantic comedy or if I want to do a thriller or if I want to do – that isn't necessarily black, I don't want to be precluded from doing that because I don't look like the protagonists and the antagonists in the piece. Right, right. Well, because your strengths are in producing that project, not in being the not in being the exactly. character. And and likewise for other people, you know, it, it's a little bit more generous going back the other way. But you know, I I find it insulting, frankly, for people to say, "Well, what would you know about this or that?" Mm. I know a lot about how to live in this world. You know, how to live in a white world. But it's back to I hate to tell you, but it's back to the people who make decisions mm -hmm. are still the stereotypers, stuck. and they're stuck. Right. And that's where the and, that's where racism comes from. Is well, that's stereotypes. It. That's it, though. They're still they think they're not being racist, and they're being racist usually because they're saying, "Oh, look at we're being diverse, and look oh, at all please. the things we're going to do." And you have to have black actors in this thing up to the and you know, and that producer and that director, you're going to make things about black people. Well. Well, let them make movies about whatever they want to make movies about because let them thrive in what thrills them. And that may not always be about making a movie about the black community. All right. Let's get into something that can be really dicey for some people. Mm -hmm. What did you think of the documentary Leaving Neverland? Yeah. No, I watched it once and it's kind of faded in my memory, but I'm ever grateful to have taken the ride with Michael and his brothers from total anonymity to total superstardom. And uh, my cousin Tony Jones and I were charged with everything but the actual making of the records, but the live show, the costumes, the banter, the schools where they would live, you know, everything but the music that was recorded. And we would rehearse every day and stuff like that. And my memory of Michael is as this inquisitive, mischievous kid. You know, and as he got older, we saw each other less frequently. But I think he is someone who made really bad choices. But I'm hard-pressed to believe that it was motivated by some dark thing. Mm -hmm. It's so hard. I, I can't make that connection. Right. And, you know, I... I guess I'm just remembering that kid that got up in Bobby Taylor's apartment to sing a cappella and who, during our, our touring days, he would like to hide, you know, we would keep all our, we would have a floor of a hotel and we keep everybody 
everybody's doors would be open and stuff yeah. like that. And he used to like to hide behind my shower curtain or in in the actual draperies or under the bed or in the closet and try to scare me. And so <laughs> he seems like that though, like from a, what you yeah, see like in playful. documentaries. Yeah. He seems that way, yeah. And um so I ended up giving him a nickname of Casper for Casper the Friendly the Ghost. Ghost. Yeah. And from a certain point on, I never called him anything but Casper. Cut to years later. So we're at the Shrine Auditorium. I'm backstage. I can't remember why I was there. And Michael had picked up like a zillion awards. And so there was this cluster of people surrounding him. Everybody's going, Michael, Michael, Michael. And they're getting close to me. And I go, Casper! And he stops and he looks around. And he comes through the crowd holding his awards. He's a Suzanne, you know. And the connective tissue from those early days Came back. never went away. Right, yeah. They never went away. And um, my heart aches for him and the family. Um, I think he was a dedicated, wonderful dad to his children. And it's hard for me to put all those pieces together because the almost seven years I spent with them practically on a daily basis, mm -hmm. it's hard to unring that bell. Didn't they live with you when they first moved out here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Jermaine, Michael, Jermaine, Michael, and Jackie lived with us. Tito and Marlon were back in, in Indiana. But when they when the whole group got out here, we did the choreography to "I Want You Back" in my living room using, you know, Coca Cola cans as microphones. <laughs> so, because in those days we didn't have choreographers, we didn't have laminated passes, we didn't have all of the sort of accoutrements of what concert behavior became. Right. It was very primitive. There was this surge of fandom that overtook us, and we were not prepared. Mm -hmm. We got prepared, but we were not prepared. On your prepared. feet, you got prepared. He, I never saw him in concert. It's one of the things I wish I had done. Mm -hmm. You know, after he'd passed, and they put together that IMAX movie called... Um, this Is It. This Is It. And I went and saw that, which was a great way, I thought, to see a concert that you hadn't seen. I thought it was a really interesting film. And with all that great music, and to watch him you know, figure that out and do the music. And I thought, wow, he that's where you see his genius. He could hear it in his head. He could make the sounds and say, this is what I want you to play. And as I watched that, I thought, wow, this guy's unbelievably talented. And all, when I left that, all I thought is, damn, I'd never seen him in concert. Mm -hmm. Well, I can give you some of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was fun. Yeah, that really was, was really, really interesting. Thank you for sharing all of your experiences and well, everything. Well, thank with you us for having me. I'm, of course. You know, have me back sometime. We'll have you back. Yeah, because okay. we didn't talk about some of the projects you and I have together. We so there's there's things to talk about. We there's have plenty lots to, talk to talk about. about and, and I'll, I'll see be able, you on Saturday. And I'll night. be able to talk about the meal. <laughs> <laughs> Tell your see friends you Saturday evening. As always, if you've enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure and send us a message on social media or email us at contact at twoguysfromhollywood.com. We'll talk at you soon. Two Guys from Hollywood is hosted, created, and produced by Alan Nevins and Joey Santos. Produced by Lauren Boone, 
Editing and post-production by Nathan Moody. Music by Luca. Executive produced by Dan Patrick. It is also executive produced by Paul Anderson and Nick Panella for Workhouse Media. This podcast is a production of Renaissance Literary and Talent and Dan Patrick Productions in association with Workhouse Media. Two Guys from Hollywood is a production of iHeartRadio and the Dan Patrick Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.